I invite you to turn with me this morning to the Old Testament book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. As we continue on in this short little mini-series going through the book of Ruth. This brief hiatus from the epistle to 1 Corinthians that we've been in for quite a while and we will continue to be in until we have finished that book, Lord willing, but every now and then it does our souls good to take a break and to consider something afresh and anew and this is quite different uh, it's it's not a new testament epistle we're not going through it in small uh, sections and chunks i struggled whether to even call this an exposition of the book of ruth because really i'm not expositing the book verse by verse i'm uh, gleaning pun intended gleaning from uh, the book of ruth and uh, considering some of the overarching themes, and we've considered the book of Ruth as a book chiefly about the providence of God in the lives of his people. Yes, it's a book of redemption, and yes, it's a book of revival, and yes, it's a book of romance, but all of those categories, all of those categories fall under the governance of the providence of God in the lives of his people. And last week we considered the mystery of providence, how that providence is often bitter and often hard to understand. And this week, we'll consider the manifestation of providence. The grace of our God appears to us in those times when even though His providence is mysterious, yet He gives us little nuggets of light and clarity and we begin to realize God is working in our lives. And that has a profound effect on the way we live and the way we view our life. So that's what we'll consider this morning from Ruth 2, the manifestation of providence. But let me begin by reading uh, Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, these are the words of God. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. She said unto her daughter, or she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. She said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me 
seeing I am a stranger. And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath been fully showed me all that thou hast done unto my mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for thou hast comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. Boaz said unto her, At mealtime come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. She sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn. And she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. When she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. And let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them, that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. So she gleaned in the field until even, and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw uh, what she had gleaned, and she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today, and where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought, and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. And Ruth the Moabite said, He said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his handmaidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and of wheat harvest, and dwelt with her mother-in-law. In chapter 1 of the book of Ruth, we find Naomi being so oppressed by God's bitter providence that she fails to recognize any sign of hope that is present in her life. She has spent the last ten years separated from the people of God in a pagan land. She has lost her husband and stood by while her sons married foreign, unbelieving women. She then lost both of her sons and one of her daughter-in-law, Orpah, who turned back. No wonder she says in verse 13 of chapter 1, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then in verse 20, the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. But before we get to the end of chapter 2, we will see that even Naomi will begin to recognize God's goodness and grace working in her life. We mentioned that book is a book of revival, and that's what we see here in chapter 2. We see a revival that takes place in the heart of Naomi that begins in the corner of a barley field as God takes an afflicted and a depressed and a destitute child and, and He woos them back and He stirs their affections and He opens their eyes to His goodness. Everything about chapter 2 indicates a turning point in the narrative. The setting has changed from Moab to Bethlehem. 
the conditions have gone from a famine to the beginning of a harvest. And the greatest of all indicators that God's face is beginning to shine upon Ruth and Naomi is found in the very first verse. We are introduced to a new character, this man named Boaz. We don't yet know what God is up to, but we know he's up to something. He must be up to something. He's, he's brought Naomi and Ruth back from Moab. He's brought them back into Israel. He's at work. He's at work. The lessons of chapters 1 and 2 are deep and unfathomable minds, never failing uh, skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. That is the song that he's putting in the heart of Naomi and Ruth. And I I do want us to keep this big picture in mind. When you're preaching through the book of Ruth in just four sermons, you have to keep the big picture in mind. You don't have uh, enough time to really get into the, the details. But as we consider this big picture, I don't want to miss the sweet and precious drama that is unfolding in the narrative. Romans 15 in verse 4, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the Old Testament, says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And that's why God wrote the book of Ruth, to give you hope, so that you could read of this family from 3,000 years ago, and you could read of how the Lord worked in their life, and it could give you hope that God might do the same for you, because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So may we enjoy the Word of God and receive hope from the pages of Scripture. There's five things I want you to see in chapter three as we go through it, or chapter two, excuse me, as we go through it. Five things I want you to see. The first is this, the record of genuine godliness. The record of genuine godliness. We've already seen some of Ruth's teachings on practical godliness, but this aspect of the book is especially prevalent in chapter two. Uh, We see a character study of, of Ruth and of Boaz, and by looking at these two individuals, We can learn much about what it means to be a godly man and a godly woman. And by studying the dynamics of their relationship, we can even learn some very important lessons about biblical relationships and courtship and marriage. Beginning in verse 1, we are introduced to this man named Boaz. And in the opening verses of chapter 2, we learn four things about him that are very important that we need to note. Four things about Boaz in these opening verses... The first is that he is a kinsman of Elimelech. He's a kinsman of Elimelech. Well, why is that important? You'll remember that in Ruth 1, we learned about the Hebrew custom of liverite marriage. The custom in the law of Israel that taught, it was really more of a custom, I mean, it was a law, that the near kinsman had the obligation to raise up seed in his brother's name if his brother died and left a widow with no son. That was the case of Naomi. You say, well, she had sons. Yes, she did, and they died, both of them. She has no son, and her husband has died. Therefore, it's the responsibility of Elimelech's kinsmen, if there is one, to raise up seed. Now, verse 1 doesn't guarantee that Boaz will do this, but it does tell us that he's qualified. Okay? 
one of the things you'll learn as you read the Bible is that oftentimes you need to pay attention to details when God gives them to you. Because sometimes those details won't come into play until later in the chapter or later in the book. But you need to take note of those details. Uh, the Apostle Paul is introduced in the book of Acts long before he becomes the Apostle Paul. Uh, and, and if you read the book of Acts, you'll see Luke introducing him. And you might think, why are you mentioning that they laid their cloaks at the young man's feet whose name was Saul? What significance could this Saul feller have? Well, he doesn't have any significance for two more chapters. And then the rest of the book of Acts is all about his ministry. So God is very specific in the way that he introduces Boaz to us. And he tells us, number one, he is Elimelech's kinsman. Thus we have a major ray of hope in the very first verse of chapter 2 that shines through the darkness of chapter 1. There is a kinsman. Secondly, we learn about Boaz that he is a mighty man. He's a mighty man. Boaz was a renowned and prominent figure of society. Much like Elimelech. Elimelech was an Ephrathite of Bethlehem. Boaz was a distinguished citizen. He was very well respected by everyone that knew him, and this respect translated into influence. The greatest type of influence that you could ever seek to have in the lives of people that you know is not through your money or through your assets or through fear or through what you can do for them, but it's through your character. How did Boaz get this type of respect? It was through his character. Boaz was the type of man that when he speaks, you listen to what he has to say. You pay attention to him because you respect him. You value him. That was the type of guy that Boaz is. Thirdly, we learn that he's a wealthy man. It says there that he is a mighty man of wealth. Some equate this with the previous quality, mighty and wealthy, but the two don't always go hand in hand. It is possible to be well-respected in poverty. And it is also possible to be rich and despised. But in Boaz's case, he was both. He was both. He was a mighty man and he was a man of wealth. He was a landowner. We, we see that in the story. He was a landowner. And he had a number of servants that he employed that worked for him. And then the fourth thing that we learn about Boaz in the opening verses of this chapter and this is by far the most important quality about him. We learn that Boaz is a godly man. Notice in verse 4, the narrator says, And behold, Boaz. Behold, Boaz. It did not say in the opening chapter, Behold, Elimelech. It just said there was a man named Elimelech. The narrator is saying to us, Something is happening here. Behold, Boaz. The manner in which Boaz greets his servants is not an insignificant detail. Why does God include that in the narrative? Uh, because it reveals something to us about Boaz's character. It's here on purpose. Boaz says to his servants, The Lord be with you. And they responded to him, The Lord bless thee. He wants us to see, the narrator wants us to see that Boaz was a man who lived a life centered around God himself. And his chief desire was for others to likewise know God and experience his blessings. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless thee. More important than his influence, more important than his money, is his godly character. Ladies, you can marry a man 
that isn't well known in society. He does not have to be a celebrity. You can marry a man that doesn't have a whole lot of money, as long as he's able to provide for you in some way. Don't even waste your time talking to a man who isn't godly. Husbands, the world will tell you that there's a great pressure upon you to make money and provide for your family and give your children the things that you didn't have. And what they mean by that is, is not a godly home to grow up in, but possessions and, and wealth. But what your family needs, more than a rich husband that can buy them nice things, is a godly man who will lead them in the things of God. All the money in the world will not do that. All the respect in the world will not do that. Being cool and well-liked by the world will not make you a godly husband and a godly father. I know that we live in a day and age in which it is becoming harder and harder to find a godly spouse. And I want to urge, especially the unmarried people here today, do not compromise God's standards of what a husband should be and what a wife should be just so you can have a relationship. Don't do that. Trust God and He will provide for you. Ruth had a greater desire to follow the Lord than she did to find a man. We know that because Naomi told her. Chapter 1 and verse 11. Naomi said, I don't have any more sons for you. I don't know if there's a kinsman for you in Israel. If you come with me, that may mean living the rest of your days as a childless widow. The rest of your life. And Ruth said, that's what it means to follow God, then I will gladly submit myself to His providence because I'd rather have Jehovah than a husband. That was Ruth's mindset. She was not consumed and caught up. She did not feel as if she needed a man in her life to complete her. She had God in her life. And if God was pleased to give her a man, wonderful. But if not, she had God. You must find your total completion and full satisfaction in God alone before you are ready for a spouse. Before God introduced Ruth to Boaz, he first brought her to a place of absolute contentment and delight in him. We see that in Ruth chapter 1 in verses 16 and 17. Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And no man, no boy will dissuade me from that commitment. From that commitment. Single Christian, God's counsel to you is find your complete rest in Him alone first. Once you've done that, then you're ready to seek a spouse, but only a godly one. Only a godly one. And take courage in the good providence of God that if He wills for you to be married, He will work out all of the details. If God can send Naomi down to Moab, cause Malin to marry Ruth, cause Malin to die, cause the famine to end, cause Ruth and Naomi to go back to Israel, and then providentially lead Ruth right to Boaz's backyard, if God can do that, He can find you a spouse. God found a wife for Adam when he was the only human being on the planet, okay? He can find you a spouse. 
I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for it. I'm not saying you shouldn't seek it someday. I'm saying you should do it trusting in the Lord and, 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 and have this commitment. Have this commitment. I will not sacrifice biblical principles just so I can be in a relationship. If God says that a husband must be A, B, and C, I'm not going to settle for a guy that's only B or only A. Or maybe he's got A and C, but he's failing on B. No, God says A, B, and C. A, B, and C it is. And guys, the same goes for you. Do not settle just so you can have companionship. Trust in the Lord to provide your needs in His good providence. So we learn that Boaz is a godly man. We also see that he's a mature man. We also learn three things about Ruth that are picturesque of a godly woman in these opening verses. Uh, Number one, we see that Ruth takes the initiative to care for Naomi. Notice it says that Ruth started the conversation and she said to Naomi, let me go and glean in the field. Uh, She deferred to Naomi she recognized uh, we, we could get off on so many practical lessons here but Ruth deferred to Naomi her husband was dead Naomi was the head of her household she respected the authority of the head of the household I have talked to young men who are in relationships and they'll say I don't know if this is the one for me because she doesn't submit to me and I say she's not supposed to submit to you you're not her husband Well, how do I know if she'll be a submissive wife? Does she submit to the authority figures that are in place in her life right now? If she lives under her father's roof, does she submit to her father? Well, no, she's grown and she moved out. She's into college, okay. Does she submit to her church? And does she have this authority structure in her life? That's how you'll know if she's going to be a godly wife for you. Ruth defers to Naomi. She seeks her approval in verse 2. Naomi doesn't have to ask her to go and glean. Ruth, you lazy teenager, get up and go make some money for this family. No, Ruth takes the initiative. She assumes the responsibility. You know, the secular world has a very inaccurate caricature of the Christian home. They think that the Christian home looks like the scene from the Flintstones, a bunch of cavemen sitting around, these men who are dragging their knuckles and being served hand and foot and who are just... Uh, telling their wives what to do, and these ditty Christian women don't know what to do until their husband gives them a command and a chore list. That's how the secular world thinks life operates in the Christian home. What a a faulty idea that is. Male headship does does not imply anything like that. A godly Christian woman is a lady who prizes and prioritizes her family and her home, and when she sees a need, she takes the initiative to meet that need. That's a godly Christian woman. A woman who just relies on her husband to tell her everything is a helpless woman. Every married man here knows the the joy of coming home after working all day to a house that is in order and food that is prepared, and a woman who has taken the initiative My wife oftentimes fixes things around the house and does things around the house that I didn't even realize was was needed. (laughs) Because she manages the home well. She does a good job at that. And I don't have to micromanage that. Naomi didn't have to micromanage Ruth. Ruth was a mature woman who took the initiative. That's the kind of woman she was. Her priority was taking care of Naomi. And for her, that meant going out and gleaning to provide for their immediate needs. The, the whole debate, I think, is just totally misconstrued because what we like to debate 
Should a woman work outside of the home? That's not the debate. The debate is, what is her priority? Her priority is her family and the home. And sometimes that might mean working. Sometimes that might mean not. It means different things in different families. But that's Ruth's priority. Her priority is Naomi. Second thing we learn about Ruth is that she is exceptionally humble. Notice in verse 2 how she phrases the question. She says, let me now go to glean. Go to the field and glean ears of corn. After him in whose sight I shall find grace. It has been said that humility is the opposite of a sense of entitlement. That's exactly what Ruth is displaying here. She does not feel as if she's owed anything. She does not say, the last ten years have been so rough, we've gone through so much hardship, we deserve something better. She merely requests to go and pick up the scraps. That's what gleaning is. Gleaning is going to the field and picking up the scraps that the harvesters did not get. And she says that if someone would let her do that, they would be gracious to her. This is so remarkable to us because when something bad happens to us, we begin to walk around as if the world owes us something, right? Well, don't you know what I've been through? Surely I deserve better. Well, not Ruth. She had a a complete mindset of humility. Let me find grace to glean. Ruth is a woman that has experienced the grace of God in her life, and she lives accordingly. Thirdly, we see she is a hard worker. In verse 7, the Bible tells us that she worked from morning until the evening, except for a, a small break she took in the house. She's a hard worker. She is a true picture of the kind of femininity that glorifies God as creator and savior. This is the type of woman that godly young ladies would do well to emulate and godly young men would do well to seek out as they look for a wife. This is the type of woman that wives would do well to learn from in their own marriages and husbands should do well to cultivate in their wives. So I wanted you to see this record of genuine godliness. But the second thing I want you to see is the revealing of God's plan the revealing of God's plan. I told you that Ruth chapter 1 is a chapter of whys. There are many questions. There are many things God is doing in chapter 1, and it makes us say, why are you doing this, Lord? And in your own life, God will oftentimes do things, and you will say, why are you doing this? Well, in chapter 2, God begins to answer some of these whys. And one of the most important whys, it's actually how we left off last last Sunday, was this, why did God bring Ruth and Naomi back to Israel at the beginning of the barley harvest? What is so significant about the the, the beginning of the barley harvest? Well, in the law of the Old Testament, same place we find Leverite marriage, we also find another law. It was God's way of providing for the poor and needy in society. Leviticus 19, 9-10 and in Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22, God instructed farmers, because you know Israel was a, a very heavily agricultural country, God instructed farmers not to harvest their crops so as to exhaust them. In other words, don't, don't get every little square inch and make sure you pick up every little scrap. No, just harvest it, and if you drop some, leave it in the field, and leave the borders of the field, and leave the corners of the field for the stranger 
the fatherless, and the widow. Which, by the way, Ruth fit all three of those categories. The stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they could come by in need and they could pick up some of your crop that you left on the field. And that's how God made provision to take care of the poor in society. By bringing Ruth and Naomi back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, God ensured that they would have food enough even though they had no money and they had no man to go out and make money. They would be provided for. However, God's providence is even more remarkable than that. This is the revealing of God's plan. And I love the way the narrator words this in verse 3. Notice, Ruth goes out to glean, and the Bible says, her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. In other words, it just so happened that, that Ruth went to Naomi's, or Ruth went to Boaz's field. We cannot underscore how providential that is. Uh, There were no doubt hundreds and thousands of fields in this agricultural utopia of the world to which Ruth could could have gone and gleaned. She did not go out looking for a certain field. At this time in the book, she doesn't have any idea who Boaz is. She's just going out and going to a field. The Bible doesn't tell us what led her to decide to go to this field. But she went to this specific field, and more than that, she went to a specific part of that specific field. And the Bible says in verse 3 that it just so happened that this part of the field that Ruth went to belonged to Boaz. Did it just so happen? Was this happenstance? What the narrator is doing here, he's not undermining the providence of God. He's magnifying the providence of God. He's speaking in the way that we speak. What a coincidence that was. Oh, it just so happened that this happened to me. We know that nothing just happens. Ruth didn't just happen to come to Boaz's field. Uh, Boaz, the one who was Elimelech's near kinsman and could potentially marry her. Uh, Boaz, the man who could redeem all that Elimelech, Malin, and Kilian lost. Boaz, the man who could recover everything forfeited by sojourning in Moaz. Boaz, the mighty man of wealth. Boaz, the godly man who loves the Lord. That Boaz is the the one who owned the field that Ruth just happened to go to. You, You want me to believe that that's a coincidence? When the Lord does things in your life and you look around at all the circumstances... And you you say, God, you want me to believe that this just happened? I know this didn't just happen. This is you. This is you. As these events are unfolding, we often can't see what God is doing. But once he brings us through and we're standing with him on the other side, we marvel at how beautifully he brought everything together to bring us right where he wants us. Ten years before... When Ruth is left a widow, when Malin dies, when she's living in Moab, do you think she had any idea that she would soon be standing in Israel right in front of her kinsman, Redeemer? Yet had Malin not died, and had she not been left a widow in Moab, she would never have wound up where she is here in chapter 2. 
I think this is a truth that we can all identify with. Some of you have shared with me how the Lord has led you in your own life through providential circumstances and providential events. Maybe the the loss of a job or the death of a family member. At the time, you thought, this is tragic. What is God doing? But once He brought you through, you saw how He used that to get you to where you are. This story gives us the privilege of looking back on our own lives and seeing how God has worked in us the same way He worked in Ruth. And it gives us the hope that the things going on in our lives right now that we don't understand. All of you are going through something this morning. You don't understand it. One day, it will be revealed as God manifests His providence in your life. You will understand it one day. If not in this life, in the next, in the ages to come, when God manifests His kindness towards you in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 7. So Ruth finds herself gleaning in the field when Boaz enters the story. And I need to, to pick up the pace. I, I recognize that. In verse 5, Boaz asked the head servant over the reapers, whose damsel is this? Notice two things about that question. Number one, he doesn't ask, who is she? He asks, whose is she? We see, this, we see this romance that's starting to bud. He's asking about her marital status. Is she married to anybody? That's what Boaz is asking. Second, we don't know how big the field was. Probably decent size because he had servants that were working it. And we don't know how many gleaners there were. Probably a bunch. But something about Ruth caught the attention of Boaz. He asked about her specifically. And it wasn't her looks, because we know from the time period she would have probably been wearing a long flowing garment that covered everything but her hands and her face. We don't know what it was, but what we do know is that godliness is attracted to godliness. Boaz sees Ruth, something catches his eye, and he says to his head servant, Tell me about her. And you can almost hear the prejudice in the voice of this head servant in verse 6. He says, Oh, her? Uh, That's the Moabite from Moab that came back with Naomi. Did I mention Boaz? She's from Moab. Stressing this, this point. Discouraging Boaz. But then he tells Boaz of her humility and her work ethic. How she'd been there all day. How she'd worked from morning till evening, except she took a little break in the house. How she asked and requested to glean. Boaz speaks to her with terms of endearment. He provides her food. He invites her over for a meal. He gives her protection, says, no one will touch you as long as you're on my field. And he says, if you need a drink of water, drink from the water that my servants have drawn up. God, why did you end the famine in Israel when you did? Why did you call Naomi home at the beginning of the barley harvest? Why did you compel Ruth to go with her? Why did you lead Ruth to this particular part of this particular field? This is why. This is why. Behind the scenes, in a realm that we can't peer into, there is a sovereign God at work in the lives of his people. 
And God had weaved and orchestrated everything that Ruth had done up until this point to bring her face to face with Boaz. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. No longer can Ruth and Naomi say that the hand of the Lord has gone out against them. No longer can they say the Almighty is bitter with us. Because here we see the providence of God so evidently working to administer sovereign grace and blessings in their lives. Thirdly, I want you to see the response to grace. The response to grace in verse 10. Verse 10 is the key verse of chapter 2, and it's one of the key verses of the book of Ruth. Boaz has been abundantly kind to Ruth, the Moabitish damsel who deserved nothing. Boaz has been so kind to her, and Ruth asks a question in response to the grace that she's been shown by Boaz. She knows she's a Moabite. She knows that she has no place with God's people. She doesn't deserve his kindness and the grace that she's been given. And again we see Ruth's humility shining forth. She doesn't respond in verse 10 by saying, well, it's about time something good happened to me. After all, I deserve it. Look at all that I've done. No. Ruth says, she asks this question. Picture this in your mind in verse 10. She falls on her face before Boaz. Without so much as even looking up to him, she says, why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me seeing that I a stranger. She recognizes her condition. She recognizes her own self-worth. She recognizes that, that it's grace that she's been given. Let me ask you two questions. Have you ever experienced the grace of God in such an overwhelming way that compelled you to ask, Lord, why have I found this grace? And if you have, what did God reveal to you is the answer. Ruth asked this question in verse 10, and in the following verses she receives an answer. And this answer is absolutely crucial to understanding the manner in which God distributes His grace. We must answer this question. You must answer this question in your own life. Why have you found grace? It's also crucial in understanding the relationship between faith and works and grace. The answer to this question is found, verse 12, in this little phrase, the refuge under the wings of God's fourth thing we see in this text, the refuge under his wings. Look at the answer, verse 11. Boaz begins his answer by telling Ruth that he had been told all the things that she had done. He says, it has been fully showed me all that you have done, Ruth. Leaving Moab, committing yourself to Jehovah, committing yourself to Naomi, taking the initiative to meet your family's needs, working hard in my fields, I am fully aware of all of it. And then Boaz says, this grace that Ruth found is a recompense and a reward for what she has done, given to her by God, under whose wings she has come to trust. Two things about that answer. Number one, Boaz answers Ruth's question with a bit of misdirection. Because in verse 10, Ruth says, Boaz, why have I found grace in your eyes that you should acknowledge me? And in verse 11, Boaz says, oh, it's not me, Ruth. It's the Lord that's rewarding you. It's the Lord that's giving you a full recompense. In effect, Boaz is saying to Ruth, this grace did not originate with me. This grace is God's grace 
I am just the means that God is using to give it to you. The second thing that we must ask, why does Boaz mention Ruth's works in verse 11? Doesn't that throw a wrench in our sovereign grace, free grace, super grace theology? Why would he mention Ruth's works? Why didn't Boaz just say, Ruth, God's grace is unconditional. There's no actual reason why God has given it to you. It's just unconditional. Boaz didn't say that because that's not entirely true. The grace of God does have conditions. And verse 11 and 12 tell us what those conditions are. Uh, There's two ways that we can interpret verses 11 and 12. We could interpret Boaz as saying, Ruth, because of your good decisions and your good works, God has considered your goodness and chosen to give you grace. The conditions of God's grace in your life are the good works which you have performed. That is a very wrong interpretation of what Boaz is saying. And it is a very wrong interpretation of how our works relate to God's grace. The key to rightly interpreting Boaz's answer is this little phrase in verse 12, under whose wings thou art come to trust. The second way and the right way to answer this question, why have I found grace? Why, why have I found grace is this. Because Ruth, you have forsaken your own merit, you have forsaken your status as a Moabite, you have not tried to earn God's favor, you have come to the end of yourself and you have cast yourself under the wings of God. That's what you've done. That's why you found grace. You've not tried to justify yourself or live on the basis of your own righteousness. Rather, you have humbled yourself and taken refuge in God alone. And God loves nothing more than to reward sinners who take refuge in Him. Boaz mentions Ruth's good works in verse 11, not as the basis for her receiving grace, but as the evidence of her receiving God's grace. Not only did God's grace save her out of Moab, it gave her new life in Israel. When a sinner takes refuge in God, not only does God's grace save them from the guilt of their sin, but it works out a practical righteousness in their life that produces an outward godliness. Boaz mentions the things that Ruth has done in verse 11 because only someone with a radical experience of God's grace, only someone, like that, could do what Ruth did. How could a Moabite, living in Moab, having never come to Israel, how could she commit herself to God? Because God was gracious to her. Because God revealed himself to her. Because God drew her to him. She wasn't saved because she made better decisions than Orpah. She was saved because of God's grace in her life. It was grace that caused Ruth to cling to Naomi. Abandon Moab and follow the God of Israel. This, brothers and sisters, taking refuge in God is still God's means for dispensing His grace today. Do not come with your own good works and your list of reasons why God should be gracious to you. Uh, Thomas Wilcox said it best in the little booklet, Honey from the Rock of Christ. When we bring anything but our own sins to Christ and we join anything to Him that is our own, 
we unchrist him. If you want to receive the grace of God, there's nothing you can do to earn it. <clears throat> you must come empty-handed with nothing to offer and take refuge in except for God alone. Ruth received God's grace because she saw herself as a helpless sinner in desperate need of it. And that's what God is doing in your life. God is creating weakness in your life so that you will see your need for Him. Do not be afraid or ashamed of your weaknesses. Embrace your weaknesses. Embrace the weaknesses that God is placing in your life when He reveals to you that you are a poor and destitute Moabitish damsel with nothing good about you. God is placing those weaknesses in your life so that you will see your need for Him. A beggar comes to the breadbasket because he's hungry. You come for God's grace only if you see how desperately you need it. And when you see that need, be like Ruth and cast yourself under the wings of God. Take refuge in Jehovah. The picture here is is this great eagle that spreads out his wings and protects the little eaglet. That's what you are. You're a little eaglet under the wings of God. This is the difference between a religion of works and a religion of grace. A works-based religion says, God saved me because I'm a pretty good person and I earned His favor. But a religion of grace says, God saved me because I am a vile, guilty, unworthy, hopeless wretch and I took refuge under His wings and He was pleased to exalt Himself in my salvation, to glorify Himself by saving me. When you take refuge in God, it is His worth, not yours, that is put on display. This always has been and always will be the manner in which God receives optimal glory in the salvation of His people. That's why Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I ask, have you taken refuge under the wings of Jesus Christ? Have you come to an end of yourself or or are you still trying to to look for something within you, some strength of your own that you could parade before Him and say, God, accept me on the basis of this thing that I've done. Have you received the grace of God that brings you out of Moab and gives you new life in Israel? The grace of God given to Ruth is still given to all those today who come to take refuge under his wings. Come to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. That's why Ruth found grace. Why have I found grace? Because, Ruth, you've emptied yourself. You've turned from Moab. and You've cast yourself under the wings of God. The last thing I want us to see, and I know we have a lot of this chapter left, is the revival of the destitute. In the latter half of chapter 2, the dialogue continues between Ruth and Boaz. You remember that meal that that Boaz invited Ruth over for? Well, she comes over for that meal, and it records the sweet beginnings of a precious romance that climaxes in chapters 3 and 4. And I wish we had the time to dissect this scene. If we did, we would find that this mighty man of wealth, this Boaz guy, is actually quite the tender and affectionate fellow. In verse 14, Boaz invites Ruth in for a meal, and they go on their first date together. And I love the way the King James renders this phrase in verse 14. It says, he reached her the parched corn. 
So imagine you, you know, you're sitting around the table and, and, and Boaz reaches over and grabs the corn and passes it to her. Apparently this Boaz fellow learned some manners and he knew a thing or two about courting a young lady. Verses 15 and 16, Boaz commands his servants to let Ruth glean even among the harvested crop. He, he tells them, drop some extra handfuls of barley on purpose to ensure that she has more than enough. And when you see her gleaning amongst the harvested crop, which they were not allowed to do, don't reproach her. Let her do it. Ruth ends the day with over 30 pounds of barley to take home. And Boaz ends the day having been exceptionally kind. To I mean, there's, there's kindness, and then there's this kind of kindness. Uh, you know, some, some, some young people think that, that the way to flirt is by being really, really mean. Well, Boaz, this shows his maturity. He realized the way he was going to drop hints that Ruth was special to him, was he was going to load her up with a 30-pound sack of barley. Okay, that's, that's flirting 3,000 years ago in Israel. You want to show your affection? You, you load her up with 30 pounds of barley, and you send her home to her mother-in-law. And he, there's, there's so much here, because he, he even says, take this barley so that you don't go home empty to Naomi. God is liberally pouring out his grace upon Ruth and Naomi through Boaz. And then in verses 18 through 23, we have this scene of revival. Picture this. Ruth has been out working all day. This is her first day on the job. She's been out working all day. Naomi has been sitting at home, probably wallowing around in her misery and feeling sorry for herself. And then she sees Ruth coming up from afar off. And she sees that Ruth has over her shoulder this giant ephah of barley. Ruth, who left the house in the morning with an empty pantry, is coming home with more than enough to meet their needs. Naomi would have been happy if Ruth could have had a handful. She comes home with this giant sack, as much as she could possibly carry. And then in verse 19, she asks Ruth, where on earth did you go and glean today? Where did you go to get all this barley? This is incredible. They didn't have Walmart then. Where did you get all this food? Remember, the narrator has told us about Boaz, but Naomi and Ruth have never spoken about him. Ruth did not know Boaz was a kinsman. Ruth thought that Boaz was just some random guy that happened to be really nice to her. So Ruth answers and says, verse 19, some guy named Boaz. I, just, I wasn't looking for a particular field. I was just walking down the road and saw this part of a field and thought, well, that looks as good as all the rest of them. And so I gleaned there and turns out that field belonged to Boaz. And then in verse 20, after a chapter and a half of misery, depression, and devastation, it finally hits Naomi. Boaz? Boaz? Oh, blessed! Be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and the dead. And she grabs Ruth and she says, Ruth, you won't believe this. That man that gave you all that barley that reached you the parched corn, he's your kinsman. He's your kinsman. 
he could potentially save us from this plight that we've brought ourselves in through sojourning in Moab. The result of this is an expression of heartfelt joy. Naomi woke up that morning singing, Woe is me! All is pitiful and lost. Gloom, despair, and agony. By the evening time, in verse 20, when Ruth comes home with all that barley, Naomi is singing, Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints... Fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Naomi sees it. She sees it. This perhaps is the most exciting thing to me about this text because I have been Naomi. I have been Naomi. You're in the slew of despond. You're in the pit of despair. Your heart is broken and your heart is crushed and you can't see the future. And you're sitting at your desk and you're weeping and you're crying and saying, Lord, how could I go on? How could I continue? And then he begins to show you his kindness to you. You see it. And Naomi saw it. For you, perhaps this was the day when you realized you were dead in trespasses and sins and you were without God in the world. And if you died right now, you would perish forever in hell. And that misery and despair set in upon your soul. And God revealed your kinsman, Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you saw it. And you saw it. Naomi saw it. She was revived. This revival comes as a result of God manifesting his providence in our lives and allowing us to see some of what he's doing. Often our problem in hard times is not that God isn't doing anything for us. It's that our gloom and depression will not allow us to see His goodness at work. See, ever since verse 6 of chapter 1, God has been at work for the good of Naomi. The problem is she's been too faithless and doubtful to see it. Ruth coming with her wasn't enough. Coming home at the barley harvest wasn't enough. But when Ruth came home with that barley and said, I met Boaz today. She saw it. Oh, how this grace changes her outlook. The Naomi of verse 20 is a different Naomi. It is a revived Naomi that has recognized the goodness and grace of God working in her life. This is the manifestation of providence. Chapter 3, we'll see the motivation of providence because when we recognize God at work in our lives, it motivates us to seek Him more and serve Him more. So let us pray, yes, that God will bless us and be gracious to us, but also that He will give us the faith to see the ways that He is blessing us, even amidst perilous times. And as God shows us His grace and work in our lives, He will motivate us to do His sovereign will as He reveals it piece by piece in accordance with His perfect timing that produces His glory and our joy. Let us pray. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name that You have allowed us to peer in on this story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And Lord, uh, we recognize so many parallels that run through even our own life. We must confess that oftentimes we find ourselves sad and gloomy and in agony because we don't have the faith to see all of the good things that you're doing in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see those things and help us to enjoy those things that we might be encouraged that you might be glorified in us as we are satisfied in you. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.